welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute, also hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined, as usual, by Dr. Joe Boot, and I am joined for this special episode of uh, Maximizing Damage Control by Dr. Aaron Rock as well. It is good to have both of you guys with us. And the uh, the reason we've got uh, we've got a good and uh, fruitful and deep relationship with uh, with Dr. Rock. Michael Thiessen has just joined us from the uh, you know the porch of his hunt camp. That's great to see. Welcome, Mike. And again, the uh, the common thread here is that uh, both of you men are fellows of the Ezra Institute, and uh, if, if the uh, if the latest reports are to believed, you were also the uh, the leading co- the leading uh, sort of animating think tank and thought leadership behind the resurgence of fundamentalism in Canada. That's. Uh, that's what we've been hearing from a uh, a recent uh, CBC piece. There's a uh, an article and a a podcast interview, radio interview that's just been released yesterday. We'll link to it in the uh, in the description later on. But this is a uh, well. Why don't Why don't I turn it over to uh, to you, Aaron? Uh, what's uh, what What brought it, What brought us all here together? Well, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. So back in December, I believe it was perhaps even late November, I was contacted by a, an investigative journalist at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, which is a partially state funded national media organization here in, in Canada. And they were wanting to know if I would be prepared to be interviewed on um it was a little bit vague on what they wanted to talk about. But as we move forward, they wanted to talk a little bit about pandemic responses, uh, responses to the increase in uh, what I would call sinful practices of human sexuality being actively promoted in culture. And I, as I think most of us are aware, we, we all know that the, the CBC is bent hard to the left, and they are certainly not at an arm's length from the liberal players in our federal or provincial governments. So I, I felt uncomfortable with that. I looked up a few of the articles written by this particular journalist and I, I informed him that I thought he was, um, you know, ideologically at variance with where I'm at. He then uh, asked if I'd be prepared to do a series of voice memos. I, I think we did perhaps upwards of 12 over the month of December and January, where he would send me a, a question and I would respond you know, as best as I could. And, and it was cordial. And to be honest with you, I, I, th- I think he was uh, doing his job at the time. He was asking good questions. There was no, you know, animosity or whatnot. So that, that I, I thought that interview or article or whatever they planned on doing with that information was going to come out around the first part of April. That's the in- indication I was given. Well, now we're into Pride Month, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is now Pride Season. According to the Canadian Armed Forces, it's Pride Season. You can check their tweet out for that that comment. And um, they've they've released this. Uh, some have called it a hit piece. I'm not sure that's in, 
entirely accurate, but there's certainly there's certainly a massive ideological bent in the article. I did get some fair coverage in it, but the 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 purpose of the article, I guess maybe the, the underlying assumption of the article is well, doesn't everybody support drag queenism, transism, homosexuality, and, and why is it that these this rather odd or obscure small group of fundamental Christians oppose it. And, and I think that's the, I think in fairness that that's a pretty accurate summary. I, I, I am concerned. I'm concerned that there are some players behind the scenes that really are going to use this for further nefarious intentions, not just to expose differences in our religious uh, perspectives or ideological perspectives. But really, this is just another, this will be used by our opponents as yet another anti-Christian attack on the church and to prop up and encourage government officials to continue to pour money and support into the radical you know, LGBTQ uh, agenda that we're seeing in our, our, our culture. So that, that's kind of a summary. I, I believe, uh, Joe can speak to this more thoroughly, I believe the same journalist requested information from from the Ezra Institute and they received a lot of information which wasn't really exposed in the in the documentary and in the article um, there there was a weird uh, a weird admission in the podcast I I knew that this journalist had attended the Mission of God conference which was hosted on the premises of our church last December I didn't know right. that he was doing secret recordings in the uh, church. I'm not sure why he would do that. We, we've been pretty transparent and pretty open about our beliefs. We're not we're not hiding our beliefs. I mean, most of us have been fined or charged or harassed in some way for our beliefs. Thought it was a little unethical, a little slimy. In all honesty, I think I think that was a bad bad play, and it certainly doesn't serve to increase people's confidence in in the mainstream media but that that was a little bit of an odd thing that took place but apart from that i i believe that this will serve to advance our cause and continue to encourage people in our of our uh, persuasion to, to fight for righteousness in our culture yeah thanks aaron yeah Joe, as uh, as aaron mentioned we did uh, we did receive a uh, a list a sheet of a uh, half dozen or so questions uh, that uh, that were asked regarding our, uh, you know, our stance on fundamental uh, uh, fundamental questions of morality, uh, behavior, what constitutes ethical uh, behavior, um, and we responded. And we re- we responded really with. Uh, Nothing, nothing that's in any way different from the public record that we have been uh, been out there with for the past ten years, really since uh, since the institute began, more than ten years, really. Fifteen, um, fifteen years, yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, <clears throat> I guess maybe uh, what uh, I guess, fr- from. I, maybe the question is, and uh, Aaron, you mentioned already uh, that it's not uh, not coincidental that this piece is appearing during uh, during the month of June. But I get maybe culturally, sociologically, 
um, why now? Why not 15 years ago? Um, why, uh, yeah. why this, this kind of, uh, this kind of attention or this kind of, uh, scrutiny? Well, one of the striking things about the, the article and the documentary pieces, as Aaron alluded to, basic, very simple, basic Christian beliefs. For example, in the article, it's an expression of shock that there are some Christians who would still say that uh, and preach or insist that they should be allowed to preach about Christian sexual ethics, that homosexuality is a sin. Um, these kinds of the, the, the these kinds of very basic elementary Christian teachings are reacted to, or at least the presumption of the article is that these are somehow absolutely beyond the pale. And so, if you think about it, what we uh, what we call gay marriage in adverted commas was legalized in Canada in two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. So that was what's that now? Uh, 18 years ago. Um, so, and that was a watershed moment. But let's let's just say that basically since the turn of the last century, so in, since 2020, there has been a very rapid acceleration of the sexual revolution. Sexual revolution uh, is often thought of as the 1960s, but the reality is, is that the sexual revolution began, uh, reached its watershed moment in the tipping point in the 1960s. And we've been living in the wake um, of the ongoing sexual revolution for the past 60 years. The last 20 years uh, in the West have brought about a legal revolution uh, in the wake of that, uh, that has totally shifted the the, the legal and uh, social framework for the ideas of marriage, human identity, human sexuality. In terms of the secular progressive world and life view, the, the, the sexual agenda, there's no social revolution without sexual revolution. The sexual revolution agenda has been the tip of the spear. So obviously the focus has been around in the legal, in legal revolution, you repeal, we've been repealing biblical law for 50 years, biblical law around divorce, biblical law around marriage, biblical law around rape, biblical law around blasphemy, biblical law around the Sabbath. So we've been in a, in a revolution against biblical law for over 50 years. And we've been, in repealing that, we've been replacing it with pagan law. Now, that has become increasingly now a legal environment in which uh, Christians are not just marginalized, they're fundamentally legally persecuted. So we have just had last year the passage of Bill C-4, which effectively criminalizes a pastor counseling members of his own congregation on the issue of human identity and sexuality. Those changes are radical and they're rapid. Now, why now? Well, 15 years ago, you were still only three years past the uh, the, the legislation around same-sex marriage. People were still trying to get their heads around that. Now, we've got drag drag queen shows for children. And so, and, with, and we're trying to normalize the idea that there are multiple gender identities and that the whole idea of male and female as creational normativity has been thrown out. So the, the, the moment to sort of leap on now what are basically, I mean, one of the things that struck me most when I both read and heard this piece was my initial reaction was 
and you know where's where's the smoking gun here you've got you know christians mm. articulating basic christian beliefs about the gospel about sin about repentance that are heard or should be heard from pulpits that are faithfully preaching the bible every sunday and you have <clears throat> comment about those same Christians who in different areas of their life, maybe at their local school level or the civic level or in other, other areas, are simply seeking to apply uh, the gospel and their biblical understanding of marriage and family, share that and seek to have an influence in their local community and society. Don't the Muslims do that? Don't the Hindus do that? Don't the radical LGBTQ activists do that? So my initial reaction was was, you know, and... I mean, is this is this yeah. really? But the, the, but the fact that the CBC has assumed that this you know critical expose of the so-called Christian right, and I do want to come in a minute. We can talk when everybody's had a chance to say something here. But I think we should talk a bit about the whole designation of fundamentalist and some of the other designations that were used. But um, the the fact that the, what seems to scare the CBC and scare the elite right now is that there is this very small segment of the Christian community, relatively small, because they differentiate between what they call mainstream evangelicals, who seem to be happy with uh, political idolatry, um, ideological pluralism, um, <laughs> and not uh, not inculcating their values in every aspect and, and of life and various areas of society. That, that somehow this, this small group of uh, believers, pastors, leaders who will not bow the knee uh, to uh, a soft totalitarian agenda, to, to bow the knee to the radical progressive religious agenda, won't drape their rainbow flag over the pulpit or the altar, refuse to lie down under the pressure. The fact that there are a few good men, if I can use that expression, that won't do this is seen as a, some kind of a critical threat. And that's the only explanation for it being on the front page of the CBC. Um, mm. That somehow, if there is a group of people that maintain a biblical perspective on the core issues, and they say that this is political, but it isn't. They've politicized theological issues. The, the whole issue of life, marriage, the state doesn't get to define marriage, doesn't get, get to define male and female. That's a religious reality that that shapes and informs political life the state doesn't the state is to recognize those things it can't redefine them but that's what it's presumed to do and if you have a group of leaders pastors who actually are take the responsibility of prophetically proposing what god requires in his word um <clears throat> this is being seen as a vital threat because everybody must celebrate that seems to be the message. If you don't celebrate queer, the queer agenda, queer theory uh, for all uh, and for all people in every aspect of society, and actually overseas as well, if you're not celebrating that and you're not an ally of that, then you are fundamentally a danger to the Canadian establishment. That's the way. This is. This seems to be the assumption because anybody who reminds people of their guilt and shame. Uh, for rebellion against God must be silenced. Therefore, everybody must celebrate. That's the only way to dispense with guilt and shame. Only if children and churches and everyone celebrates, then there is no longer a voice that might remind us of the righteousness of God and our accountability to him. 
So I think the timing is absolutely, of course, tied to, as Aaron said, the, you know, uh, I think probably pre-show there, the 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 pride season um, to sort of set up this ideological standoff. But the timing is that the cultural waters have shifted to such a degree that the CBC now thinks that basic Christian beliefs held by pastors, churches, Christian charities are so far beyond the pale that this will um, result in the um, the castigation and marginal further marginalization of of Christian people. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Thanks, Joe. Uh, one other uh, one other point that the that this article raises uh, that I wanted to uh, open up to any one of you for comment on is tr- uh, the, there's a, an overt attempt to, to align uh, conservative Bible-believing Christianity of the kind that, uh, that we all subscribe to and affirm and preach with a, a more populist, generic, right-wing nationalism that, uh, that doesn't... Uh, doesn't claim a sincere uh, faith in Jesus Christ necessarily, uh, but uh, but there's a there's an effort there to 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 take uh, you know sincere gospel faith and weld it on with uh, generic right wing politics. And what what is the what is the response from from a gospel preacher who is as you've mentioned, there are, there are, the gospel has political implications, but the gospel is not inher- a, a political uh, thing. Uh, what, what is the response to this, uh, this attempt at, uh, at alignment? Or, um, yeah, I guess al- alignment is the best word. Uh, Ryan, I think it's an astute question. I just think it's, uh, I just think it's a, a trap. I think it's I think it's a false equivalency for the sake of scaring people. I'd I'd kind of uh, equate this to an ad hom argument. I know we're going to talk about the fundamentalist uh, terminology and the reconstructionist terminology a little bit later, but you can see it really clearly with one of their headlines. It says "separate from mainstream evangelicals," and 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 Joe touched on this. And what you really need to see is it, all of those words are just trying to frame the discussion around, look at these people who are not normal. And so I, I don't really think there's a credible, especially if people are listening to us, that Aaron's podcasting regularly, Joe's podcasting regularly, we've got a number of podcasts at Liberty Coalition Canada. If anybody's listening to us, I, I think that they would quickly see through those loaded phrases. So, um, yeah, they basically say we stand apart from other Christians who have accepted religious pluralism, and that's just not true. And you can actually see it in the quote below. Uh, they use a, a gentleman named Rick Heemstra, um, who is a part of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and he's one of their research um, associates, and they utilize him to kind of uh, make that point. They utilize a, a, a you know well, two sentences from him. You know, Rick sat down with the CBC and did an hour and twenty minute interview. He specifically said that he doesn't 
know very much about Reconstructionism, and he didn't want to comment on it, that he would be commenting on evangelicals. Rick and I have had a, a wonderful phone call uh, since this interview. And, you know, Rick's question to me is, Mike, I think that where I would, I would describe you, if I was describing you as another brother in Christ, would be a Reformed Christian, like someone who believed in the uh, in the in the conf- in the, the the reformed confessions, someone who attempts to utilize um, the church's doctrine and the church's wisdom for society, uh, and attempts to use the the the, the law of God uh, in the same way that the reformers and the Puritans would do that. He said, "That's what I'd kind of describe you as." I said, "Yeah, that that is that is really what you're describing." So. So all of that, Ryan. Just the, the simple answer uh, is it's just um, it's just ad hominem arguments that is that we're supposed to every you know Joe's supposed to freak out now that he's been labeled a fundamentalist. Aaron's supposed to just run away and hide because he's been given this terrible uh, terminology. I just want to say, guys, good for us being the next generation of good-looking fundamentalists. You know, I. Can, yeah, I, I think um, I think Mike. We, we fundamentally believe in the Word of God, and we're okay to speak that to the public world. And what this article really wants to do is it wants to silence us because we've been labeled incorrectly or we've been labeled with loaded words, and it wants to silence silence uh, a number of other Christians who are afraid to jump in the fray because uh, they don't want that same type of uh, uh, um, attention is the word mm-hmm. that I'm looking for. They, they don't want that same kind of attention. And so that's really, you know, that's why all those different terms are in there, Ryan. I, I would agree with Aaron. Uh, on the surface level, there's some pretty significant research that was done. I don't feel uh, extremely misquoted other than the fact that uh, if anybody knew Mike Clark, uh, the whole top secret thing uh, is it is just a fun like, hey, come just over go. and check out what we're doing. Uh, he apparently <laughs> isn't that good at being top secret. If he hands like he's handing it out for one day and he hands it to an undercover CBC uh, reporter. So uh, maybe we just need to work on that side of things. Uh, but other than that, I feel like. The, we're we're well represented, but they're just shocked that we actually believe in God and believe in mm. God's created order and want that uh, want God's vision for life to be uh, given to every Canadian and every American and every Brit and for the for the whole world, which is again so common to our to our creeds and our faith. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna propose that for future. Uh, Ezra Institute conferences that uh, we just make press passes available. You know, you don't uh, you don't need to slink in here. You can you can save your uh, your state budget the forty bucks, and we're, you're welcome to be there. Yeah, and absolutely. we can put top secret on absolute. We should put top secret on absolutely everything. Sermons, yes, podcasts. that's, that's going to be the theme. That's the theme of the next conference. <laughs> that would be the best. We should label this podcast. That was certainly one of one of the ironies, obviously, especially when you listen to the documentary and you've got this sort of rather eerie music in the background and you're hearing about this oh. gated community on 10 hectares and 
so on. And it's all very like there are these secretive kind of movements going on with these tentacles reaching into America and you know, so on and so forth. This all sounds very clandestine and secretive. But as, as Aaron was pointing out, you know, we have shouted all these things from the rooftops. And certainly Ezra, which is described by the journalist in the documentary as the think tank at the heart of the fundamentalist movement in Canada, um, we have been saying these things for 15 years openly in every book, journal article, podcast, sermons. The Ezra Institute uh, is not a political organization. The Ezra Institute doesn't even do direct political advocacy. We are a Christian mm -hmm. world and life view think tank. We teach the Christian faith. We write about the meaning of the Christian faith. We teach people uh, how to defend the faith. We teach them about Christian world and life view. And we engage non-believers in discussions about that. Um, because so much of life has been now absorbed by the state, all of these various subjects become politicized. But that doesn't mean they're no longer the appropriate domain for preaching or the appropriate domain for Christian charities who teach Christian worldview. I mean, don't forget the advancement of religion is a charitable object in Canada. It still mm -hmm. is. Right. That is the, it's the, the advancement of religion is one of the key charitable objects. That's why we did answer all of the questions of the CBC, as you said, uh, Aaron, Ryan. Um, and uh, in there, I said we advance the spiritual teachings that are two millennia old of the Christian church. Um, and we encourage Christians because we don't abstract our faith from the world to actually apply them. Um, and if that makes us um, a radical movement, um, so be it. Praise the Lord. I just, I just want to add to that point, Joe. Uh, there's been another article come out today. I'm sure you guys have seen it. The National Post. This, this goes to your point, Joe, of um, the politicizing of everything, the politicizing of education. All schools must comply. Schools get heavy-handed against pride backlash at least two provinces at least two provinces have now warned school boards that a failure to properly observe pride this is in the national post a failure to properly properly observe pride that's a that sounds like a religious uh, uh overtone there could be illegal and so if you go on and you read what our minister of education stephen letch uh, Lecce has said, he says this, I'm just going to read it. It is incumbent upon all school boards to ensure that all students, most especially the Rainbow Mafia students, that's that's my, my italicized there, not his, feel supported, reflected in their schools, and welcomed within our communities. And he goes, and that includes celebrating pride, pride capital P, as, as if it's a, it's a new worship experience. So, Joe, to your point, like this is the minister of education telling school boards that they must participate in the celebration of these things. That is the government certainly uh, reaching directly into education and into the worldview sphere, the religious sphere. Yeah, at one other point, Mike, mm -hmm. you probably saw that the uh, government, I think, is chipping in somewhere up, somewhere upwards of 
$750,000 of your money. So think about this. If you're listening to this show and you're in Canada, when you go to work today, you're going to work and receive a wage or a salary. And then the government is going to chop off a chunk of that for taxation. And then your money that you labored for today is going to be sent to the pride movement so they can have a parade down Young Street or various streets in our country. And the government is going to take your money and give it to them to provide them with safety and security. Now, this is also the false premise that somehow they're, they're being persecuted. They're not safe. I mean, you can barely, in fact, you literally cannot go to Twitter or Facebook for June, July or August in Canada and not be exposed to this ideology relentlessly. It's extremely difficult to find a store, a restaurant, a gas station that's not flying the flag. How many of these, how, how, the government, of course, is, you know, they chase the Lord's Prayer out of our school. They chase the Bible out of our school. They're trying to chase organizations like Child Evangelism Fellowship out of our schools. But they're going to actually use your money, taxpayer money, to fund these ideologies. And it definitely demonstrates the, the new religion, the, the new paganism of, of our culture. And this isn't just limited to Canada, of course. It may be a little more extreme here, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a ripple effect uh, across the Western world. Mm-hmm. Aaron, that's a, uh, that brings up another point uh, that we were, we were talking about uh, before the show. It was one of the points that, uh, or one of the questions that was on this document that, uh, that we were sent by the CBC journalist. Uh, and that's the, uh, that's the issue of charitable status. And Joe, you mentioned this already, but uh, we, you've talked in the past, uh, and you've got, uh, got a really striking way of describing uh, the, the state of affairs that leads to acknowledging churches and religious groups as, uh, as charitable, as, as tax-free, as, a, uh, as an embassy. And that, that, that was a really uh, interesting point that, uh, that stuck with me from the time that I first heard you say it. Maybe you can just uh, flesh that out a little bit for all of our listeners, maybe who haven't heard it before. Yeah, so one of the things that you've seen in feedback to this article that that uh, I'm sure we've all seen is that one of the things immediately that because I think this was part of the goal of the uh, these pieces was to question the fact that churches today, uh, faithful churches like like Aaron's um, and many others, um, are uh, recognised uh, under law uh, as charities, and of course there are all kinds of religious charities and organizations that are in Canada that do a variety of different kinds of work. Um, the, 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 the question that they want to raise now, I think, is that given the, the change in the legal environment, and as Michael has just explained, you know, if we're at the point where this is a, a mandatory religious festival in the schools, well, then what about these churches that just don't celebrate that what, what what about these church these churches that um are basically charities um that are non-compliant what about the organizations that are charities that are that do not celebrate now historically what you're referring to is the fact that in the west the church wasn't until fairly recently in legal terms uh granted charity status the church simply asserted right. its legal immunity from taxation 
Yeah, people have to remember that most of the tax laws, most of the taxes that they pay today are, are post-First and post-Second World War temporary yep. measures that were initially war measures to fund the war, but they remained and they were used to build the modern welfare state. So this is a lot of people's ignorance uh, on these things. Um, and so uh, new sort of uh, statuses needed to be created for um, groups that already enjoyed immunity or, or wanted to register to be uh, exempt from these new taxes in the 20th century. Uh, but the church's immunity was asserted on the basis that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was recognized in the West. We just watched King Charles III's coronation mm -hmm. in which he is welcomed by a child into Westminster Abbey at the beginning of the service. He is our head of state in Canada and in the United Kingdom um, uh, with the words of a little boy saying, we, the children of the kingdom, welcome you in the name of the King of Kings and the rest of the entire service is one of subjugation and surrender of the state to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, his word, and his gospel. That uh, demonstrates to you in constitutional form the way in which Christ and his embassy, the church, because we are Christ's ambassadors, Scripture says, is seen. You don't tax, um, let's take the Canadian embassy, for example, or the British embassy, um, outside of Britain, let's say in Africa or the Canadian embassy in, um, let's say, Uganda, is not subject to taxation. It's sovereign Canadian territory or sovereign British territory. Um, and that is how the church was recognized. It's Christ. It belongs to Christ. It can't be taxed by the state. The taxation is a claim to ownership. So that's mm. the origin of the church's immunity uh, from taxation. But as, as Aaron pointed out, we're seeing this return to a, 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 view, a view of the state that has a neo-pagan character. The freedom of the church is being eroded. Remember that in the, when the church burst onto the pagan world, it became the first truly free institution in the history of the Western world that declared its independence of the state. Now we're in a situation where that independence is being steadily eroded. We saw it during the last two or three years during the COVID debacle. Um, and... Um, we're seeing it increasingly now where more and more churches bend and want to bend to the uh, state ideological religion. So um, that, you know, the advancement of religion, whether it's through churches or charitable organizations, remains at this point um, a charitable activity in Canada. How long, I think, is a question because I think the goal of mainstream media and many of these uh, anti-hate groups and organizations. And, and we saw it even mm. in the liberal manifesto, the liberal platform uh, at the last election was the removal, a manifesto pledged to remove charitable status from pregnancy care right. centers to take away unless you uh, basically counsel for abortion um, and refer for abortion. Uh, and so what we're seeing is the erosion, basically, of freedom. And we've talked about this a lot as a ministry. These are theological issues. This is about Jesus Christ, his lordship, his church, his lordship over the family. Um, and so uh, this, when, when Aaron or Mike Thiessen preaches in their churches about the lordship of Jesus Christ and God's standards for human behavior, they're not being political. They're not reducing Christianity to a political religion. 
they're just facing up to the fact that the Bible declares things that have political implications and always have. And the kneeling of King Charles III um, and the, the reception of the, the kneeling for anointing and his reception of the Bible and the reception of the scepter of justice uh, are marks of the fact that our constitution historically recognized the submission of the state to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so a question I think lies ahead in the coming years for obviously for Christians, but also for the state. And that is to what extent are freedoms going to be maintained for churches and organizations that will not go along with this prevailing ideology, uh, that will not teach it, uh, that will not celebrate it. And if we are to take the road of basically outlawing it, then we can join China and North Korea then in our view of civil liberties. Mm. If I can um, just add to that, Joe, there's also a very practical uh, implication. First of all, I'll just assert and declare that those that think that we're going to bow and buckle because they take our tax status away, uh, you know, are in for a rude awakening. I think if yeah. we if we demonstrated anything during the 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 so-called pandemic, you know, many of us incurred several hundred thousand dollars in in potential fines, and we stood firm. And our churches grew, so there's there's absolutely no way that some threat of removing our ch- tax status is going to change our message. In fact, the worst thing that our opponents could do is to 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 go after our tax status because that's just going to swell our numbers. It's going to increase our givings and it's going to deepen our resolve. I can guarantee that. But let's suppose they go after it and they're successful and whatnot. Well, then they're going to pay more taxes. There was a study that came out. I think it was in London, Ontario. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It might have been called something like the Oasis study. I'd have to look it up. Don't quote me on it. But the the study actually looked at the fact that when churches receive money from their parishioners, and keep in mind, we don't get state money like CBC does or the pride movements do. When people in our church open their own wallets and give money to the church, and they do receive a tax credit for that, but they don't get money from the government, and the churches do pay taxes on the purchases they make, but they they get a break on property tax, for example. But if they take that away, so let's just say a church has offerings of $100,000 or a million dollars that comes in in a given year of, of charitable donations. Well, that, that money goes to support infrastructure, of course, as it would in every organization, but it also goes to, to alleviate poverty, to keep marriages together. You know, we're counseling marriages so that people can stay together. Uh, this benefits children. This reduces the, the strain and stress on the taxpayer to invest money in social services. So the point I'm making is that if the state or our opponents think that well, we're going to take we're going to take tax free status away from churches, and that's going to shut them up. Actually, you're just going to pay more taxes, because the government will then the church will have less money to invest in marriages, family, social welfare, and the state will have to don that responsibility. And we all know that the church can do the work for a tenth of the the price of the government. So if you want to take tax status away from the church, just know your taxes will go up because the government will have to backfill the services, the, the quote-unquote social services that we otherwise offer through the charitable gifts and donations of God's people. Which, which by the way, is the reason why they would want to go after tax status. Because, again, this is a competition between 
individuals operating freely and convictionally versus a, a state that wants to be the middleman. So every bureaucrat that goes after church money has a vested interest in going after it because they can coerce taxation and they get to be the middleman sucking off the teat of the people. Uh, they, they, that, that's why government intrinsically wants to grow. In fact, that's why some that that's why that's why institutional corruption is so uh, normal. And when you have no um, moral authoritative compass, no direction, then that just leads to personal greed and to further personal power. Uh, you know, I just want to comment on this because Aaron, you brought it up that that article about the funding for the Pride Parade. Globe and News just reported that that, that they're going to get $1.5 million of added funding for the security around the Pride uh, event. Now, just think about that as I read this statement. Given the electoral ambitions of groups like Liberty Coalition Canada, da, 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 and the financial resources of the sympathetic conservative Christian organization, LGBT, LGBTQ activists worry they are ill-equipped to confront the backlash uh, against their community. That's just that's just utter garbage. They just got $1.5 million. Aaron, have you ever been given $1.5 million from the government for anything? Joe, have you been given 15 cents, for heaven's sakes? So the reality is that the government has a vested interest in this debate. This is all ideology. We've talked about it before. It's it's now clearer than ever. We see it in the uh, in the National Post statements. The government is pro-sexual perversion. They're pro-increasing the state, getting people uh, more and more dependent on the state with things uh, like the universal uh, income. And they have to, Joe, as you've mentioned, they have to squash opposition to that so that they get to sit in the sweet spot, the completely um, unaccountable uh, ability to rob money from citizens position of what we would call that beautiful government job where you get a pension for the rest of your life. Like, folks, this is why we're speaking truth against these things. This is why we're standing up because the government has just partnered with this perverse community uh, that we want to see freed. We don't, you know, we look look at this picture of the, the founder, Jis uh, uh, Russell, and I look at her and I go, I don't want her to be a slave to sin anymore. I, I want her to be freed in Christ. And the government's just exploiting, just using this uh, group as a way to further their, their end goals in growing. Well, that's right. The, the totalitarian impulse, I mean, the Soviet Union made charity eventually illegal because it sets up a rival that's seen by the state as setting up a rival power center. So the church in that sense, as well as the family, one of the reasons the modern state has sought to increasingly asset strip both the family and the church and Christian organizations uh, with um, increased regulation and legislation is that it's seen as a rival power center. If you've got a community 
like Aaron was talking about the church community there, giving, which the churches do, Christians do, they sacrificially give in many churches to fund all kinds of things. The sense of loyalty and community is built. The loyalty is built to Christ and his community, his new humanity. Loyalty is not drawn away from Christ to the state, whereas an ever-expanding welfare state, the goal is to remove rival power centers where there might be rival loyalties so that everybody, as you rather pictorially expressed it, Michael, is sucking on the teeth of the state. And um, that's the nature of uh, a totalitarian drift in politics. It's that you treat all these other these social institutions in a parts-to-whole relationship as though they are lesser parts of itself, and they are then heavily regulated until their freedom and independence basically vanishes. And that's why we affirm at Ezra the principles of sphere sovereignty. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I, uh, early, early on in this, uh, this call, I asked, uh, I asked you, why now? Why, is, why are we experiencing this, uh, this kind of scrutiny now? Uh, as we get towards the end, uh, we've already, you've already mentioned uh, the tax-free status, the the blowback or the backfiring that uh, that that's going to cause for for those who would uh, persist down that track, uh, the public censure that uh, is really not uh, not some not a uh, not the weapon that uh, that many seem to think that it is. Uh, let me uh, let me just ask. What next? Uh, in light in light of this uh, this breaking investigative piece, where a senior investigative journalist has done the deep investigative work of looking at publicly available information, um, what uh, what are we what are we going to do? Does that, does this change uh, what we do or how we do it? Yeah, Mike. I just want to, I'll, I'll pass the baton quickly to you guys, but I, I want to share what I've been coming across over the last few days with Christians and let you guys comment on it. This what next thing, I continue to hear Christians just kind of soothe themselves on the back of the neck and say, well, that wasn't that bad of that bad. That wasn't that bad of a hit piece. And so it'll probably just go away. Or I hear Christians say, you know what, I think that people are getting tired of, of being pushed with this uh, pride doctrine down their throats. So I think it's a, a narrative that people are exhausted with. And so I don't think there's going to be anything, any more problems. And the age-old evangelical response is, we're going to be fine because at the end of the day, there's going to be some mysterious self-correction out there. Um, we, you know, CBC is eventually going to, you know, wake up and, and, you know, normal people are going to see this. And I just want to say that what's next is political posturing. So this was, uh, uh, this was a, a, a specific piece to open the conversation about charitable status. It was likely in the same way that we've seen other political um, articles come out. It was likely sponsored by somebody who has a very specific message. So it could have been sponsored by, you know, the uh, anti-hate.ca group who have connections all throughout uh, the CBC. Um, uh, That's a charity that takes state money, by the way. 
yeah, that That's is that right. is a, that is a state funded uh, organization to some degree. I'm not sure the extent. Um, you have a liberal party, as Joe's already mentioned, that that has um, candidated on the platform of uh, producing more and more legislation to be uh, more regulatory around speech and what they would deem as anti-hate and going after Christian charities. So what Christians shouldn't do and what we shouldn't do is think that the worst is over and that um, that everything's going back to normal. No, this is, a, as Joe mentioned earlier, in the same way that it took time to move from the legalization of quote-unquote gay marriage, which we would just label as sodomy, um, uh, just to get that out there for Jacob, who uh, who couldn't be on the call today, um, that was a you um, you need to know that with the way that Bill C four is in place, Bill C eleven is in place. I believe Bill C eighteen is still on the docket. And if you were to go online right now and look up Bill two six one, Bill C two six one, which has had its first reading and hasn't gone anywhere in a while. You have all of these bills on the table, and they are directly talking towards this conversation. And so I will continue to warn Canadians and continue to warn uh, Americans who are around me um, that the legislature, uh, the legislation around these things is is becoming more severe. And do not do not do that old habitual. Everything's going to be okay because at some point we're going to figure this out. This is going – it's going to need um, bold proclamation of the gospel in a, in a moment in time that we likely haven't seen since the Second World War. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I, uh, I, would, I would say too that if you, study, if you study the history of persecution among any people groups – especially if you study the history of persecution against Christians, there's a sequence of events that takes place. And on that continuum is vilification. So you have to vilify your opponents in order to ostracize them. And this is why they utilize language like fundamentalist, which, you know, we might say theologically, if we're in a seminary classroom, oh, the fundamentals of the faith, Trinitarianism, the virgin birth, the authority of scripture. Yeah, these are fundamentals of the faith. We're comfortable with that word. But we also know that in the Canadian vernacular, fundamentalism is a negative word. It's associated yeah. with other religions too. Fundamentalist Islam is a threat. Fundamentalist Hinduism, these are connected with terrorist activities. They're anarchists, these sorts of things. So you'll, you'll see the utilization of these words, fundamentalist, anti-trans, anti-gay, not biblical, procreational, um, Orthodox Christians, you won't see those positive kind of words used. It'll be words that vilify and ostracize. And ultimately, the goal is to relegate Christianity to the fringe. We saw our prime minister do this with those that would push back against mandates. Oh, they're part of the small fringe minority, mm -hmm. small fringe minority. That's a deliberate attempt. That's a classic play among tyrants and those that would want to ostracize their opponents. You know, and as I mentioned in the podcast, 
you, you feel like you have you have no say at the table. This agenda is being foisted upon everyone from kindergarten, you know, right through to the nursing homes. And uh, when you sort of just put your hand up and ask a question, you know, you're automatically expelled from the public dialogue. So we need to see the 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 strategy, the tactics, if you will, of our our opponents, so we can properly address them. And one of the things we'd want to do, of course, is to define language and use positive language in the process to properly articulate where we actually stand on these issues. So we don't want to just react to the insults or react to the labels. We want to make sure we preach the truth and continue to communicate mm -hmm. the truth of our message to those that would, would listen to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important yeah, that's point, Aaron. Uh, it, actually, it uh, there, there's another... Uh, trigger word, I guess, that uh, that this article uses uh, pretty regularly uh, to uh, to depict the uh, the language and the teaching and the perspective that uh, that we all are purported to uh, to be coming from. And uh, Joe, in particular, is uh, that's uh, that's applied to you. And the word is reconstructionism. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you do you want to comment on I guess, how that? Uh, how that word is used, why it uh, why it's applied, uh, whether whether the charge sticks, uh, and uh, in which ways. Yeah, quickly. Um, uh, uh, wanting to respect everyone's time on the call um, in the discussion, but um, as Aaron has pointed out with the word fundamentalism, um, it's really a pejorative term now. So. Fundamentalism is a pejorative expression that is meant to be a term of scorn or a slur. In the same way that the word Puritan was initially used as a slur, um, the fundamentalists, the early fundamentalists, was that was what the liberals um, uh, called them because they affirmed what they called the fundamentals. Um, fundamentalism mm. became much more of a sort of, uh, uh, in, in America, became... Uh, a sort of movement associated with Zionistic, Israel-centric um, uh, prophetic expectation and, uh, and all those sorts of things and, uh, and, and often disengaged from society um, in its retreat from wanting to be associated with liberal engagement with society, which is interesting. In fact, missiologists call it the great reversal um, in, where evangelicals began to retreat from those things that they've been engaged in. So Aaron's really correct there. It, it um, uh, the, the the use of the term by the by the by the media is to is to really slur and vilify, um, which is ironic because that's what they claim we try to do with the um, the radical progressive LGBTQ movement, um, hmm. uh, you know, to expose people to vilification. Um, yeah, so the ironies abound. But the word, the, the other word, you, as you said, yeah, that they use is reconstruction. It's interesting that they've dug that one up. Um, the, it's, a, uh, it's, again, pejorative. So uh, I think the reason they've used it is they were very anxious to tie what's going on in Canada to America. It's very easy because you can then associate a populist Christian right in America. That plays very well in the Canadian media with Christian fundamentalists in Canada. And it all adds to the sort of scare narrative uh, that you've got these sort of, um, uh, you know, um, muscular revolutionaries about to overthrow government in Canada. Um, but the term um, originally was used 
in the 1970s um, about or even by um, basically reformed Presbyterians who were engaging um, uh, with a discussion about the role of God's law in society and the need to recover in a robust way um, uh, the resources of biblical law in a collapsing and decaying culture, you know, recovering the whole counsel of God. And it was a, it was a thorny debate in the Presbyterianism primarily. Um, and, uh, it, uh, it was quite factious. Um, but there were a number of different thinkers who then were, uh, associated with a reconstruction movement. If you think of post-modernity as deconstruction, uh, if you're talking about Christianity as reconstructing something, I don't actually have a problem with that. Um, our project is constructive, and actually, because we have we have we've abandoned a um, a formerly Christianized culture with all its weaknesses and limitations, we don't want Christendom 1.0. We need a 2.0, but we are rebuilding something. I mean, wasn't that what Nehemiah and Ezra were all about uh, in the rebuilding mm. of the 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 temple and the walls? So. There is something reconstructive, but the, the, the way the term's being employed is to try and um, uh, sort of bring to people's minds a kind of fractious notion of a group of hardline Americans who wanted to install an ecclesiocracy by force in America. These are all radical misunderstandings, of course, and we haven't got time in this podcast to, to go into all the details, but that was the basic idea that here you have this sort of Christian Taliban, a kind of um, uh, radical ecclesiocracy that would have clergy ruling over the state and impose uh, biblical laws on an unwanting and unsuspecting people. And the reason people think that way, the reason the CBC would think that way and think that's a, a usable term is, A, they've picked up the pejorative meaning, and two, they're statists. So the way they think about government mm. is that if somebody does want to engage culturally, it must be with the same motive and framework that they have, which is a statist political function, which is about imposing. Um, so whereas we would articulate our view as a kind of biblical libertarianism, but various names would then be associated with that, everything from a Cornelius Van Til, who really was just an intellectual forebear of uh, those who began to think through the fact that there's no neutrality in any area of life. And he talked about theonomy or autonomy, right through mm -hmm. to uh, people like Francis Schaeffer um, and um, others who in uh, the so-called Christian right in America began to articulate the need for Christians to re-engage in these areas. But I would say that, you know, you only have to look across the pond here to uh, one of our other fellows, Dr. Jonathan Burnside, um, who's the professor of biblical law at the University of Bristol, to see here's a completely, you don't need to use a pejorative label to talk about Christian re-engagement with the resources of biblical law. Um, uh, Jonathan's book, um, God, Justice and Society, Oxford University Press, right. is a tour de force of the relevance, the, the historic and abiding legal relevance of biblical resources, biblical material, biblical constitutionalism to all of the contemporary discussions and the importance of re-engaging that for Christians. So, um, yes, we're dealing with a pejorative term. It's meant to scare people because people will come across all the misunderstandings of it. The reason that we don't use that term, we don't use either fundamentalist or reconstructionist about our, uh, our work. In fact, the only place you will find me refer to that is in my academic work that was part of my 
master's and doctoral work when I was researching a number of key thinkers uh, within the Reformed Presbyterian movement, including Van Til and R.J. Rashtuni and others, um, was in its historical context. What we're interested in is the overall direction of travel. What's the overall direction of thought? And that is that every law order, every society, uh, and every um, social order rests on a principle of sovereignty. And every principle of sovereignty, whether it's the sovereignty of the state, the sovereignty of the people, or the sovereignty of God, rests on a divinity concept. So every culture is actually a theocracy. It just depends which God is the head, uh, is at the, at the root of that social order. Um, and a, a law order rests upon it. And so uh, somebody's morality is always being legislated in terms of some uh, divinity concept and some mm -hmm. idea of sovereignty. And the Christian, if we believe that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus Christ, that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, um, and uh, that uh, we have been, we go in his authority to disciple nations, then we are going to take that claim to lordship seriously, and we're going to take his word seriously as we seek to apply it. Now, to be fair to the CBC, obviously they're fish way out of water. I mean, CBC journalists wandering around in reformed uh, theology and, um, and Christian philosophy, they're well outside of their comfort zone. Um, and so they're going to be relying on some comments here from sociologists there. And to be fair to John Stackhouse, I'm sure that he was given a tiny little bit of, um, of, of quotation from what he actually said. Um, and um, you know, and, and in fairness, he's right to say that this is a this is a uh, within Protestantism. This is the Calvinistic branch of Protestantism that's concerned with the sovereignty of God over all of life. Um, and so we're happy to own that, uh, but we don't own the pejorative meanings, uh, misunderstandings of those terms. Right. No, that's uh, that's a good summary and. We have, uh, we have spent entire episodes of this podcast kind of uh, d diving deep into those, those terms and the history of their usage and application. So if, uh, if we've picked up any new listeners over the course of this, uh, this past week, uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to seek those episodes out as well. You'll get a, uh, a fuller treatment of, of how these terms are used and applied and what they mean and don't mean. Well, gents, I, uh, I really appreciate your time here. I'm, uh, I'm mindful of it, and I don't want to take, uh, take a lot more of it, but I'm grateful for all of you for being on the show today. And let me just uh, close with our, uh, our standard uh, benediction. We soldier on knowing that uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified, and we'll be with you again next week. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Thanks for listening.